Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you for it, and we ask, Lord, for conviction and faith to believe, strength to respond, and wisdom to follow you. So give us insight. Remove, Lord, remove the veil from our hearts that we may clearly see the glory of the gospel, the glory of Christ, and our desperate, desperate need for Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 26. We're actually going to be ending at the, or starting at the end of chapter 26. The late Frank Sinatra sang a lot of great songs which continue to be heard and sung in our day and age, and I'd say it's not a stretch to say, um, you know, we we hear his songs all over the place still, even to this day. We hear them in in movies, we hear his songs in TV shows, we hear his songs even in, in commercials sometimes. And there are a few songs of his that are, that are more popular, as with any artist, a few songs that stand out. Maybe his most famous song uh, was New York, New York. But the song that summed up his attitude toward life was a song that he wrote with Paul Anka called My Way. He sings, I've lived a life that's full, I've traveled each and every highway, and much more than this, I did it my way. And the lyrics to that song are almost certainly a reflection of the attitude that Sinatra had toward life. And it's a song that could be used to characterize the attitudes of the people in our culture today, by and large. We are a culture that stubbornly resists and defies any and every form of authority. Anyone who dares to challenge what we want to do or what we value, we have a tendency to defy. We live in a day and age when people live as if they are their own greatest source of moral authority. And people tend to believe that nobody has a right to tell us what to do, what to think, what to wear or what to believe. There's a war going on in the culture against all authority, against governmental authority, against parental authority, and against spiritual authority. We live in an age of absolute lawlessness, an age in which an increasing percentage of people refuse to submit to anyone or or to any institution which has been put in place for the purpose of offering some type of restraint, including moral restraint. And you would think that when I'm talking about this, I'm only talking about people who aren't in the church. You'd think that I'm only talking about people who aren't Christians, who don't claim to be Christians. But sadly, I think we all know that is simply not the case. What Frank Sinatra proudly sang should be and and is true of everyone who isn't a Christian. They're doing it their way. But there is an increasing movement, an increasing uh, proliferation of professing Christians in our culture who live as if they are their own greatest moral authority. They're following the example of the culture. They're immersing themselves in the world and not abstaining from anything that the Bible forbids. 
They live as if they are their own greatest authority. They refuse to yield to authority, just like people in our culture, including the authority of Scripture. And let us not ever be tempted to boast, lest that describe us. Instead, we have to remain humble because we must realize that not a single one of us, not a single person who is living and breathing in Christ is immune from the temptation to live our lives like that. If only there were only two options. If only there was, uh, lead me, O thou great Jehovah, or I did it my way. The truth is, there's a lot of gray area in between there. And we find ourselves somewhere in there. The fact of the matter is, the Christian life is a journey in which we start out as weak, feeble children of faith. When we come to Christ, when Christ renews us, when He regenerates us. And by the grace of God, we end the journey as strong and mature men and women of God. And the journey between point A and point B is all about learning to turn away from our tendencies to be selfish. It's all about learning to turn away from our self-centeredness, our desire to, to follow the impulses and the desires of the flesh, and to instead exalt Christ in every aspect of our lives and to yield ourselves more and more and more fully to the authority of Scripture. And while we have to recognize that getting from point A to point B, uh, that takes a lifetime, and, and even then, the work must be completed by Christ in glory. Nevertheless, I believe that it's biblical to call into question the legitimacy of the profession of faith of anyone who continues unrepentantly to show no evidence of learning to die to the self and to mortify, to, to put to death the sinful deeds of the flesh. The 27th chapter of Genesis is all about a group of people who insist on doing things their way. And of course, this is a tendency that we saw demonstrated in Abraham. So this isn't something new for us. This is something that we're seeing over and over again. It's actually kind of becoming a little bit of, a, of an undercurrent of a theme in Genesis. But if there's one verse in Scripture that summarizes what we're going to see as we look at the 27th chapter of Genesis, it would be Proverbs 14.12 which says, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. The central point of this chapter, in other words, is that there will always be consequences for refusing to do things God's way. And thus, when we insist on doing things our way, we never get exactly what we wanted to get because God's will and God's plans cannot be thwarted. So our passage today actually is going to start with the final two verses of chapter 26. You'll recall that uh, in the 26th chapter, Isaac had sojourned through Canaan in a time of famine, a time of, of drought, and that God had been faithful to protect and to provide for and to prosper Isaac, ultimately leading him home to Beersheba with a covenant uh, with, the, with the king of peace, a covenant of peace with the king Abimelech. But the ending of this chapter, of the 26th chapter, is really bittersweet. That, that ending is, is sweet. You know, he's got this peace treaty that he signs, this, this covenant with Abimelech, but then we go into these last two verses and it shows us a bittersweet ending, which is going to lead us uh, to a chapter in which nobody is doing things God's way. 
So let's take a look at what follows. Let's look at uh, chapter 26, verse 34 to 27, verse 4. We read, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die." So we start off the end of chapter 26 by seeing that Esau takes two wives. Not just one wife. He takes two wives. And not only does he take two wives, but he takes two Hittite women as wives. And the author specifically tells us, it's explicit, he tells us that the result is that Isaac and Rebekah's lives became bitter. We already got the sense that things are, are starting to go in a bad direction here. There's no question. It looked like it was going so good. By the end of chapter 26, it looked like Isaac was just walking with the Lord and that he was perfectly in God's will and that he was this great man of the faith. But now, things start to head in a bad direction. and We remember how serious this is because we remember how adamant Uh, Abraham was, that Isaac not marry a daughter of the Canaanites. So he sends his servant back to his own homeland, back to Abraham's homeland, to find somebody from his own line. And why did that even matter? Well, it mattered because Abraham knew that having a woman who was a daughter of the Canaanites as a wife would be bad news for Isaac that she would lead him astray. He knew that a Hittite woman would lead Isaac astray from the faith, from believing and from walking in the promises of God and the covenant that he had established with Abraham and his descendant. Esau doesn't have just one pagan woman who's going to lead him away from the faith of his father. He has two pagan women who are going to lead him astray. And so if you take that into consideration, it's no wonder that Isaac and Rebekah's lives became bitter. See, the custom of the land was not for a son to leave his parents and to establish his own household in a, in a different neighborhood or anything like that. Rather, he would be expected to continue living with his family, providing for his parents in their old age when they're incapable of providing for themselves. And so there's division and there's strife that's brought into Isaac's home. As he brings these two Hittite women into Isaac's home, he marries two daughters of Canaanites, two Hittite women. Consider how the circumstances have changed with this one small move, seemingly small move. There were once three saints and one child of wrath in Isaac's household. But you add two more children of wrath, these wives, and the score is three to three. So it's no wonder that their lives became bitter. Because you cannot mix light and darkness and live at peace. There's going to be bitterness. There's going to be brokenness. 
And what we're going to see in this chapter today is that the bitterness leads to a very, very dysfunctional family. It leads to a bitter home for everybody. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.26, he said, And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And that's a picture of Esau. That's, that's exactly what Esau's done. More, more bitter than death? I don't know. You know maybe, that's, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But maybe it's not. If anybody knew anything about having plenty of women, it was Solomon. Either way, we see that that's what's going on here. Life in the house of Isaac is bitter. And there's a gap between the end of chapter 26 and the beginning of chapter 27. And we know that, um, that Isaac was 40 years of age when he took Rebekah as his wife. And we know that they waited 20 years for offspring. So that means that Isaac was 60 years old at the time that Jacob and Esau were born. But now that Esau is 40, we know that Isaac is 100 because we're just doing math here. So he was 100 years old at the end of chapter 26. How old is he at the beginning of chapter 27? We can't know exactly how old he is, but we know that it's a significant amount of time later. We can't be sure, but uh, Luther did calculate that, um, that Isaac would have been 137 years old at the beginning of chapter 27. So however old he is, his eyes are going dim. In other words, he's going blind so Isaac's status is that he is both bitter and he's blind. And I would imagine that the blindness that he is suffering has multiplied, that it has exacerbated any kind of bitterness that was already festering in his heart. I'd have to think that that's the case because in this chapter, he demonstrates an animosity toward almost everybody, including God, that we don't see before. Uh, before the, the 27th chapter of Genesis. So this is something new. He's grown bitter. He's grown dysfunctional. He's grown angry. He's grown rebellious. So Isaac calls Esau to his side and he asks Esau to go out and to hunt some of that game that he loves and to prepare his favorite meal for him because, well, you know, he, he might be dying soon. Actually, he's got a long way to go, but I think he's just coming up with an excuse to get Esau to go out and get him some game. And in exchange, he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the blessing of the Father. And there are so many things wrong with this entire scene. It's, I mean, it's hard to know where to start, but let's just start with what God had already decreed, what God had already said. God had already said that the blessing and the birthright belonged to Jacob. Jacob the cheater, Jacob the swindler, who already stole the birthright a couple chapters ago. But that was God's prophecy to Rebekah, that this belonged to Jacob. This was going to be Jacob's. Now, you might chalk uh, Isaac's actions here up to uh, being senile. That, that maybe he's just getting old. Maybe, you know, poor old blind Isaac just forgot what God had already decreed. But there's too much sinisterness in this. There, he, he's, he's very sinister in this chapter. I don't think he's losing his memory. In fact, as we'll see through the rest of this chapter, his memory seems to be working perfectly fine. 
So it's not his mind that's off. It's his heart. It's his heart. The most sinister aspect of this whole thing is that Isaac does this this little invitation to, to receive the blessing privately. He does it privately. He invites Esau in privately and says it to, to Esau with nobody witnessing as far as he knows. And so the, the ceremony of the blessing is going to be done privately as well. It's all very hush-hush, very private. And that's not the way that it was done in that culture. That's not the way that it was done at all. In fact, it was a very public event in that culture. So why does Isaac try to conduct this transaction, if you will, because he's trading Why does he want to conduct this transaction privately? Because he knows that he shouldn't. That's how you can almost always know that you're doing something that you shouldn't because you do it privately. He knows it's wrong. He knows it defies God's will. He knows it defies God's decree. But Isaac decides to do things his way rather than God's way. And this is all just a picture of the polluted stream that flows from a bitter heart. But it's not just Isaac. He's bitter. He's defiant. But it's not just him. It it just so happens to turn out that Rebecca is the same way. And she was eavesdropping on Isaac's private conversation with Esau. So let's continue. Verses 5-17. to Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to, to, to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son, Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So she just happens to kind of be listening in on this private seemingly private, conversation that Isaac was having with Esau. And she overhears this conspiracy that they're, con- con- that they're concocting. And the conspiracy of her own starts formulating in her mind. She wants Jacob, who is her favorite son. He's the homeboy, remember? He's the one who likes to dwell in tents while Esau likes to go out and hunt. She wants Jacob, her favorite son, to have this blessing. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing. It wasn't bad for her to want for Jacob to have the blessing. It's good for her to want what God wants. The problem is that she wants what God wants for the wrong reason. 
her favoritism toward Jacob. That's why she wants him to have it. Not because God had ordained it, but because Jacob was her favorite son. She, married, she very well may have claimed, hey, you know, I, I just want what God wants, but that is never enough. It's not enough to want what God wants. Our motivation for wanting what God wants also must be pure. So she comes up with this plan. She instructs Jacob to go and, and get two young goats for her, not exactly wild game, which is what Isaac had ordered. And she prepares a meal and she cuts portions off the goats and, and puts them on Jacob. And, and, and she, she takes some of Esau's garments and puts them on Jacob so that Jacob's going to feel hairy and so that he's going to, to smell like his brother. And, 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 and Jacob, as far as Isaac can tell, is going to be just like Esau. So she puts the disguise on Jacob. She puts the food in his hands. And she sends him in to deceive his father, saying, listen only to my voice. And make no mistake about it, he is 100% complicit in this. We're going to get to, to him in just a minute, but he is absolutely going along with this plan. This is, this is something that he is willfully participating in. And when you see this plan, when you see this little conspiracy that, that uh, Rebecca and Jacob are coming up with, you might ask, well, What's she supposed to do? Because obviously Isaac is in sin. Yes, Isaac is absolutely in sin. So what is Rebekah supposed to do? I mean, there are plenty of other things that she could have done. There were plenty of options for her. Isaac's sin was not just a sin against God. It was, first and foremost, a sin against God, as all sin is. It was also a sin against his entire family. So what Rebekah should have done is she should have confronted Isaac. She should have gone to him privately. Uh, there's something that you can do privately. You can confront somebody in their sins so as not to publicly shame them, at least assuming that they will repent. So she should have gone and confronted him and cautioned him against resisting God, against defying God, against opposing God's sovereign decree and the, the, the fact that the blessing and the birthright belonged to Jacob. So she could have also just done nothing. She, she could have just let it all play out and just step away from it. And let God work it out the way God was going to work it out. Trusting that God is the one who had decreed that the blessing and the birthright belonged to Jacob. So let's let God just take care of this. So she could have done nothing. But we don't like doing nothing, do we? And that's not always the right thing to do. It's not always the wisest thing to do. You know, it, it, most of the time, it, it's good and right to not want to do nothing. The idea of letting go and, and letting God, I don't, I don't know where that comes from. That, that's not a biblical idea. We want to do something. We don't want to do too little, though. And we also don't want to do too much. So what do we do? We, we find some kind of balance between too little and too much. Uh, you know, both Abraham and Isaac did uh, did too much. They took matters into their own hands when they, they shouldn't have. So what is one to do? How are we to know what God's will is? And the answer that I tell people is do something. But number one, don't sin. And number two, proceed prayerfully and carefully. Proceed prayerfully and carefully. Whatever you do though, don't sin. 
and, and Rebecca resorted to sin here. She doesn't take a moment to pray and ask God for, for guidance or for wisdom or for her husband's heart to be turned. Instead, she takes matters into her own hands. She does things her way. She conceives this conspiracy in which she and Jacob would deceive Isaac, her husband. She did things her way. Now before we continue, I, 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 think, we want, I think we have to ask ourselves uh, how this worked out for Isaac and Rebekah. Because both of them are doing things their way. Well, well, how did that work out for them? Did they get what they wanted? No. Neither one of them got exactly what they wanted. Isaac wanted game, but he got goat. He wanted to bless Esau despite what God had ordained, and he's about to lose that too. Instead of blessing Esau, he's accidentally going to curse Esau. He's going to curse uh, anyone who curses uh, Jacob. And Esau is going to curse Jacob, putting himself under Isaac's curse, which we're going to see before we're done today. If Isaac had done the ceremony publicly, there couldn't have been any deception. That's got to be one of the main reasons not to do something like this privately, because it, it all just backfired. It all just blew up in his face. If it would have been done publicly, somebody would have said, hey, uh, that is not Esau. So Isaac did not get what he wanted. He did things his way, rather than doing things God's way. And not only did he not get what he wanted, but he got things that he didn't want. He did things his way, and he paid the price for it. What about Rebecca? She did things her way. Did she get what she wanted? You might say that she got what she wanted, but she really didn't want the extra things that she got. She wanted Jacob to receive the blessing, which he's going to get. But as a result of this whole scene, the, the fruit of this scene is that Jacob ends up fleeing for his life as an exile, and Esau is going to move to Edom. So she's going to lose her sons as a result of all this. And in the ancient world, that was a worst case scenario for a mother. A mother did not want to lose her oldest son, for sure, but she didn't want to lose any of her children. Because if Isaac dies, and she doesn't have any sons living with her, who's going to take care of her? Who's going to fend for her? She's going to have to fend for herself in her old age, which is something that rarely, if ever, turned out well. Further, if she wanted to, to put uh, Jacob over Esau, well, okay. But in doing that, she ends up putting Jacob under her harsh and cruel slave master of a brother, Jacob's uncle Laban. So what's the point here? The point is that there are always consequences, at least temporal consequences, for refusing to do things God's way. And when we insist on doing things our way instead of God's way, we never get exactly what we wanted to get because sin has consequences. And God's plans and God's will cannot and will not be thwarted. But Isaac and Rebekah aren't the only ones who are doing things their way in this chapter. It is absolutely epidemic in this chapter. And just like a nut doesn't fall very far from the tree, Jacob does the exact same thing. He does things his way rather than doing things God's way. And as you think about this, you think, what a dysfunctional family. 
Let's continue, verses 18 to 29. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether, or not, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate. And he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And as you look at this, you see that the amount of deception is just growing and growing and growing. It's increasing with every verse here. Jacob not only quickly follows his mother's plans, but when he's asked, how did you get this meal so quickly? He lies. He's forced to lie, right? And this isn't just any old lie. This is a lie about God blessing him. It's one thing to lie. It's quite another thing to lie about God. Neither is right and neither is good, but one is certainly worse than the other. But notice what he says. He didn't say, the Lord my God has granted me success. What does he say? He says, the Lord your God has granted me success. What a disgusting and discouraging and horrible picture of the multiplying effect of sin. You know, sin will always take you further than you plan on going. If you plan on, on taking a taxi down to, let, let, let's say you plan on taking it to SeaTac Airport, and instead the, the, the driver just keeps on going and you end up down in Portland, how happy are you? That's what sin does. It always takes you further than you plan to go. And it's interesting to see that, that Isaac's mind is still very sharp. He, he understands what's going on here. He, he sees that, that something doesn't quite add up. His mind is sharp. He may be blind, but he sees things quite clearly. He sees that things aren't quite adding up. So it's not like he's losing his mind. He's just lost his sight. So he feels the hair on Isaac's hands and the, the hair of the goat deceives him. And he realizes, he identifies the voice as Jacob's voice, but he thinks it's Esau's hand. Verse 23 says, And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. 
So the conspiracy, the conspiracy plays out as Jacob and, and Rebecca had planned, as they had, as they had hoped. When he's had a meal and he's had a little bit of alcohol in him, Isaac calls Jacob over to kiss him, and apparently this was for the sake of smelling him, just to make sure that this is Esau and not Jacob. But Jacob is wearing his brother's garments, so Isaac is completely deceived. And look at how the blessing ends. Look at verse 29 with me. Verse 29, Isaac says, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. And he says this. This is important. He says, Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. What Isaac doesn't know is that he is cursing his favorite son. He's going to ultimately curse his favorite son based on what he did here. Now some people look at what Jacob has done here, and they clear him of any wrongdoing. You know, it's not like he should be guilty. I mean, it did rightfully belong to him. And hey, wasn't he only obeying what his mother said? Doesn't, doesn't the Bible tell us that we're supposed to honor our mother and father? Well, yes and no. We're to honor our mother and father, yes. We're to honor every authority that is placed over us. Every authority that is placed over us is placed over us by God. You guys know that? Every authority is placed over us by God, and we're to honor every authority that God has placed over us until they prevent us from doing something that God has specifically instructed, or they prohibit us from doing something, or they instruct us to do something that God has forbidden. Only two reasons to defy authority, and it has to do with God and what He's commanded. Now keep in mind that Jacob isn't a young kid here. He's not a young boy here. He's not a young man here. He's not even a middle-aged man here. He's probably in his 70s. He's old enough. He's wise enough to know better. The fact that he's complicit shows that he is a willful participant in this scheme. He wants the blessing. The blessing belongs to him and he wants it at any and all costs. It's good for him to want it. That's, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's a good thing for him to want it. But the means by which he goes about attaining it are all wrong. His motivation is all wrong. He's not doing things God's way. He's doing things His way. It's good to desire the birthright. It's good to desire the blessing of the Father. It's what God had ordained for him. But his desire for what was good, caused him to rely on his own wisdom, on his own understanding, on his own method for receiving the blessing and the birthright. It caused him to sin. And that's never good. Jacob's deception as well as the deception of Isaac and Rebekah, you know, it, it all seems so amazing that these three saints would stoop to such lows. I mean, you, you consider... Isaac's prayer of, of blessing is over Jacob. He thinks it's over Esau, but it's over Jacob. It completely defies everything that God has already revealed about his sovereign will, about his sovereign plans for Jacob and Esau. And it just seems so amazing, seems, seems so incredible that they would just adamantly and rebelliously defy God. These three people who are Saints. 
It might amaze us that they failed to trust in the promises and the providence of God to this degree until we get honest with ourselves and we realize that we've all undoubtedly done the same thing in different ways, but we've all done the same thing. We like to do things our way even when we know better or should know better. Haven't you ever done something that you shouldn't have done because it was going to make you happy and you knew you shouldn't do it, but you thought about how much joy, how much happiness it was going to bring you, how good it was going to make you feel, regardless of what God has said about it. Maybe you decided that you know God couldn't really mean what His Word clearly states. Maybe you convinced yourself that God just he wants you to be happy because He loves you. And if He loves you, doesn't He just want you to be happy? Even if that means defying His precepts? And you're sure that you're covered by grace because God really loves you. Self-professing Christians who are in sin and who are applauding the sin of others do this stuff all the time. One verse that, that so many Christians resort to is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Is Jesus telling us they're not to judge? No. I've had people try to rebuke me with this verse more times than I care to remember. And it demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of that verse, which just like every other verse in Scripture, must be read and understood in its entire context. In this, this little parable of the man who has a splinter in his eye and the guy with the log in his eye goes to him, what happens at the end of that parable? He removes the log from his eye so that he can take the splinter out of his eye. So Jesus wasn't saying, don't judge In fact, the whole seventh chapter of Matthew is instructing us to judge. But to judge correctly. Not to judge hypocritically. Using that verse to justify sin or to justify abstaining from moral judgment demonstrates a complete lack of respect for Scripture and a complete lack of respect for Christ. Because by pulling that verse out, you are making Him say something that He didn't mean. And there is no end to the ways someone will twist or ignore or reinterpret God's Word in their quest to justify sin. Think about the story of Nadab and Abihu who brought strange fire, what's called strange fire, before God and they were immediately consumed by fire for it in judgment. They had justified the whole thing in their minds. Hey, you know, God is, God is worthy of, of being praised. Okay, God has instructed us in how to worship Him properly. Okay, but I want to worship Him my way, they thought, and soon regretted. The fact is that having the right motivation is a good start. Wanting what God wants is good, but it never ever, ever excuses disobedience or sin. And Jacob is sinning. Jacob is being disobedient. God isn't done with him, obviously, but at 70 plus years of age, he's his own man. He does things his way. And there are going to be serious consequences for that. Let's look at verses 30 to 40. 
As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and all he, yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Esau, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. Your sword, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So as soon as Jacob has secured the blessing, he takes off. He, he, he hurries out of the room. And as he does, he passes Esau. Esau shows up with this meal of, of delicious game in hand. And you can imagine what's going through Esau's mind at this point. For the last several hours while he's been out hunting, he's been thinking about how desperately he has wanted this blessing. Years earlier, he, he had given up the birthright. But now he can, he can get the blessing before Jacob has a chance to get it. The blessing wasn't rightfully his, though. And he knew it. He knew it. He, he knew that it belonged to his brother. He undoubtedly knew it all along. But this was his plan with his father to, to, to secure the blessing for Esau, despite what God had ordained, and regardless of Esau's willingness to let go of very valuable things just at a moment's whim because of impulsive desires. And it's fascinating to see Isaac's reaction upon learning that he had given the blessing to Jacob. The text says he trembled very violently. Very violently. You might wonder, what's going on here? What, what's he doing? Why, why does he react this way? Why does he react by, by trembling violently? James Montgomery Boyce said this of Isaac's reaction. He says, quote, It was the realization that he had tried to box with God and had been defeated. 
and that he would always be defeated unless he surrendered his own errant will to the Almighty. End quote. So in this moment, Isaac realized that God's plans could not and would not be thwarted. Isaac had had done everything that he could to defy God, to circumvent God's sovereign plans, God's sovereign authority. And in this moment, Isaac has a moment of kind of an epiphany of, of startling clarity that it's futile to defy God and that his feeble attempt of taking matters into his own hands had blown up in his face that it had backfired. Isaac had intended and conspired for evil, but God had used it for good. God had used Isaac's sinful, rebellious intentions to advance his own sovereign plans and purposes, and Isaac's refusal to submit to God's will didn't slow God down for one second. It didn't prevent God's will from being done. So Esau cries out to his father, have you not reserved a blessing for me? If you think about what he's saying there, what he's really saying is, didn't you plan on reserving a little bit of a blessing for Jacob? And Esau's response boils down to, not really. I was going to give it all to you, Esau. I gave it all to Jacob. Look at verse 38. Esau cries out, bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And this forces us to, to once again consider the commentary offered on this scene by the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17 says this. It says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. All four characters in this chapter did things their way instead of doing things God's way. And neither Isaac nor Rebekah, as we saw, got exactly what they wanted, neither did Jacob or Esau. Jacob did get the blessing of his father, but that was at a cost that was way greater, much greater than he had bargained for, because he was going to spend years, years as an exile and as a slave to Laban, his uncle. In chapter 33, we'll see that that Jacob will be forced to bow before Esau and to call him Lord before Esau will bow to him. The consequences of sin, of this sin, were going to haunt him for the rest of his life. What about Esau? Did he get what he wanted? Obviously not. And we might be tempted to just feel sorry for Esau here, to, to really sympathize with him. But there's no question that he's just doing things his way here. This is what he had invited into his life by doing things his way instead of God's way. He's only looking out for his own best interests. He's not submitting to God. He's not acting in obedience to God. And his weeping is meaningless. Meaningless. He weeps over what he's lost, over what he desired. But it was just an impulsive desire. And his weeping might evoke you know, kind of a, an empathetic response, but we have to see he's not repentant. He doesn't change his ways. He doesn't change his heart. He isn't thankful to see that God's will is proceeding as God had planned. He's not turning 
from his impulsive, self-serving, self-exalting, self-seeking ways to do things God's way. This doesn't break his heart. He's crying because it's hardening his heart. His tears aren't tears of repentance. They're tears of anger, of bitterness, of frustration. They're tears of anger and hostility and animosity toward God. They're the same type of tears that you would expect to see from a small child who's hurt that they didn't get their way, but they're only resolving to try harder and do better at deceiving next time. Esau still didn't see or turn from the error of his ways to do things God's way. And so his sin begets sin, which, which is always how sin works. Sin begets sin. Let's, let's finish it up, verses 41 to 46. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Esau's anger, his, his bitterness, his refusal, all leads him to just hate his brother. The anger that he, he really has toward God leads him to, to hate his brother and to vow to kill his brother as soon as Jacob dies, thus placing himself under the curse that Isaac had spoken against anyone who cursed Jacob. This chapter is just a reminder that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thinking is higher than our thinking. It reminds us that God's sovereign will can't be thwarted and that whatever we conspire to do out of selfish ambition will only end in our defeat. Isaac resisted God's will for 70 plus years. From the moment it was revealed to him a couple chapters ago, that it was revealed to Rebekah a couple chapters ago, Isaac hated it. He defied it. He refused to submit to it. But once Isaac submitted to it, once he truly repented in this episode, God forgave him. God forgave Isaac, and he remembered his sins no more. And you need to know that God does the same to this very day. All who will turn to Christ in faith from their wicked ways will have their sin removed from them as far as east is from the west. All who repent, all who believe in Christ will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, not, because it, not in an attempt to deceive the Father, but because that's what will please the Father. That is what pleases the Father. Consider the words of the psalmist, 32 Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, and we'll end with this. Blessed is the one 
whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. How surrendered are you to God? Be honest with yourself. How honest are you, or how how surrendered are you in an honest assessment? What sins in your life have you tried to justify before God? Have you played games with God's holy word in an attempt to do things your way instead of His? What aspects of your life would demand a deeper submission to God's will? What will it take? What will it take for your selfish will to be broken? Today. Today is the day for you to resolve to yield more fully to the will of God, to trust more fully in Christ, and to do things His way instead of your way. Today is the day. Today is the day to forsake your ways and to follow Christ more wholeheartedly. And it's all part of the journey of getting from point A to point B. It's part of learning to die to self and put to death the deeds of the flesh, which is so difficult now. It's so difficult now but which we will be so thankful for when the journey's done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And thank you that we may see the foolishness and the futility of doing things our way when we should be doing things your way. Forgive us for the times that we have played with your word, that we have ignored your word, where we've known what your word clearly says, but we've acted against it in a moment in which we were enticed by pleasures of the flesh, selfish ambition. Oh, Father, We thank you for this journey. And were it not for your grace, we could go no further. So we ask for your grace to sustain us and to grow us until we stand before you in glory and you finish your work in us. That we may reflect your values. That we may follow your will in this life for the glory and the honor of Christ Jesus our Lord who took our sins upon himself and clothed us in his righteousness that we may stand before you blameless as blameless as Christ we pray these in Christ's name Amen.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.